Welcome to Growing Unicorns, where every week, Holly Chen, Eli Rubel, and me, Karina Edwards, come together with some fun guest hosts at a live interactive discussion where we unpack stories from the trenches while we're working with some of the fastest growing unicorns today. Everybody, welcome. Uh, This is our very first Growing Unicorns Live. We're very excited to have all of you here, have this discussion. This is going to be a kicking off point for us. So we're going to do this every single week, same time, same day. And generally, we aim to have different guests on the show with us who are leaders at unicorn companies, have experience from the trenches, both at a a leadership level and and executing over their teams to share stories and and to talk about what's top of mind for us. So um, this is meant to be really casual, and we want there to be a lot of interaction from your part as the audience. So um, please comment in the chat if you have ideas, questions, topics, uh, nothing is off limits. So I will be keeping tabs on the chat. If you see me looking over here back and forth, that's what I'm doing. And um, we're going to get things started. So Paul is our first guest. And I would love, Paul, for you to introduce yourself. Hello, everybody. I'm Paul Darcy, and I'm CMO at Miro, uh, the online whiteboarding company. I'm based here uh, in Austin, Texas. I'm home right now. And then before this, for almost eight years, I was CMO of the job site Indeed, which we grew from a little company to 250 million monthly users and 11,000 employees around the world. And I've been in tech for a while. My first CMO job was at one of the first 100 SaaS companies in existence, a company called Message One, which was started in 98. So I've been in Austin all of that time. So that's a little bit about me. Amazing. Thank you, Paul. And then Holly is one of my co-hosts. So Holly, I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Uh, thanks, Eli. Oh, Paul, I'm so excited for, for our conversation today. Uh, I think it's going to be super fun. Um, I currently work as a advisor interim exec for SaaS companies. Uh, currently, I work with Impura as their interim CRO and um, and interim head of marketing at, at Loom and uh, Entopology. Uh, I was uh, advising uh, Miro before Paul's time, and I'm so glad uh, to be able to, to chat through and, uh, you know, between us, we've seen Miro like from like 2020, 2021, these two amazingly transformative years. So I think it will be a really interesting conversation. Um, before becoming advisor full-time, uh, I was at Slack overseeing their global digital marketing from hundred million IR to 700 million IR and going public. Uh, and previously at Google, uh, was both a B2B and B2C functions. Um, so really looking forward to, to the conversation today. We're going to talk about um, the intersections of uh, brand and performance, which is one of my favorite topics. Uh, and and we'll, we'll just chat uh, and see where the conversation goes. Perfect, Holly. Thank you. And, uh, and then I'm going to plug for our co-host who is not here today, Karina. Um, her, her kiddo had a 103 fever, so she had to run off to preschool and take care of that. Obviously, that's the top priority. So um, Karina's not here. She is the VP of Demand Gen and Growth at MatterMade. And I am the CEO of MatterMade, um, advise and help uh, implement strategy and execution for unicorns. So Hop and Calm, Loom, uh, G2, Dropbox, a bunch of others. So very amped to talk about all the things that we think about on a daily basis and some of the you know hurdles and mountains that we've had to climb. And uh, with that, let's kick it off. So Paul, I'm going to throw it over to you because I know you have this passion for the intersection of performance marketing and brand marketing on a more long-term horizon. So can you explain to us just like, what does that mean to you? And, and how did you come up with this niche spot? I mean, my, my passion really is, as a marketer, is for driving growth. And um, it's that passion for driving growth that is, has you know, brought me to, to think really deeply about that intersection between brand and performance. Also, you know, I've, at this point in my career, you know, probably invested about $5 billion in, in marketing spend through different experiments. And through, through those experiments over the years, um, have, have learned a lot. 
I, I think that like the foundation for me is that people are not rational decision makers uh, and that emotions play a really important part in the decision making process. Uh, and, you know, when you look right now at just the world of SaaS, there's 15,000 SaaS companies. You know, I'm a marketer. You know, a lot of us are marketers. There's more than 7,000 SaaS companies that sell to marketers. Um, pure performance marketing is not enough to cut through and to get people to make decisions in your favor. It takes a combination of long-term brand building and then, you know, smart growth and performance marketing to optimize long-term growth for business. So that's how I've gotten to, to a little bit of that perspective. I love that. So here's a question, maybe for, yeah, this is for both of you. So I'll throw this to Holly first. You know, uh, Paul mentioned deploying a massive amount. I think you said 5 billion into various channels of the course of your career. And Holly, I'm sure between Google Slack and, and others, you're probably in a similar uh, space as far as the amount you've deployed. Are there frameworks that you like to rely on? I, you know, I, I know that playbooks aren't something that we like to talk about because they just change constantly and, and they're ever evolving. But frameworks, I think when it comes to testing and deploying spend that you like coming back to as fundamental. That's a really good question. I, I would love to hear wh- how, how Paul thinks about it. Um, I look at this from a different stage and the need of the company um, in early days, uh, you want to start thinking about the brand story, why uh, why the product exists, uh, who does it exist for. Um, so there's a foundational um, brand story and messaging there, and that helps the growth marketing team to to deploy whatever campaign or or create the channels uh, that communicate those brand stories. Um, in, in early days, uh, running experiments to kick off uh, some of these machines so we know which channels might be working better than others and then scaling from there. I almost... I have a theory that it's not necessarily tested or or very wide. I'm I'm curious how how Paul you look at it is like in in early days almost like yes we we had like two things we have to get right like messaging foundational messaging and let's test growth channels in like very experimental way and then it's growth become more important as we scale. And then at a certain point, only running demand gen and growth is going to limit yourself. And then we have to open up the top of funnel and building brands to um, almost change the curve uh, to the next phase. Um, so that's where a lot of the scaling stage companies get stuck um, because they become this more tactical tool versus what's the brand, what's the emotions, why people like would spend you know a million dollars versus um, ten thousand dollars to buy your product. That's my Holly's theory. Uh, I would love to hear, Paul, your framework. Yeah. I mean, just I think responding, I think, first of all, what you're saying makes a lot of sense, Holly, that um, like early on in a business, like the name is important, the identity is important, the customer experience, you know, viral loops and word of mouth are for sure incredibly important. And it's that combination of things that I think gets to whatever that first threshold of, of scale is. Uh, and then at the point that, you know, there's significant paid acceleration of the business, I think it should be a mix of performance and brand. I mean, when it comes to frameworks, I think there's just, for me, there's a couple of things. Like the most basic thing when I think about marketing is that what we're trying to do is acquire the most long-term value at the lowest cost. And so it's that, you know, ratio between long-term value and customer acquisition costs. That's the key of this. And then... One of my core beliefs is that most of the arbitrage value in marketing sits in the things that are the hardest to measure. And so with that, you know, a lot of the first go-to growth channels like paid search, you know, are priced to the least sophisticated buyer. 
And, you know, when you go to the things that are hardest to measure, radio, I think, is probably the hardest thing to measure. Um, there's enormous opportunities um, to, 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 to spend and to drive value that, you know, um, there's very few people who have the, you know, the experience and have run those experiments and figured that stuff out. So I kind of combine those, those concepts. It's, you know, where can we look for opportunities to drive, you know, growth most profitably, um, being creative around how we measure, how we design experiments, and, you know, knowing that we want to balance short and long term. There's, there's probably a few interesting things also to talk about in that. It's, it's interesting to tie this back to, I mean, you can see some of this happening in the market and there, and there are certain types of marketers that almost are a signal or a flag for a business shifting strategy or prioritizing brand into their mix. Like you see, um, was it Zoom Info just brought on Shane as their CMO? He was previously at Intercom, took Intercom through a rebrand and like repositioning to not just be, you know, what their series A through series B or C story was and be much more about brand. Same thing with Hoppin bringing in Anthony as their CMO. Both of these guys are, are very traditionally like they're all about brand, right? And so this is clear play where they're thinking, okay, if we want to have a long-term staying power that isn't just the utility of what it was this year and also drive down our cost to acquire over that longer time horizon outside of paid or, or industry tailwinds, uh, brand is a bet that those companies are clearly making in a big way. And I do see that in the biggest companies too. Obviously, you know, you look at Google and Amazon and Facebook and others. And, you know, there are companies in particular, Google and Amazon, that, um, you know, skewed traditional advertising for a very long part of their evolution and now are, are some of the biggest spenders in that domain. I think Amazon is the number one spender now in the US. Um, you know, Apple, obviously, for a very long time has done enormous brand building. Um, uh, you know, there's plenty of B2B companies in that list as well, IBM and others. Yeah. Holly, um, at Slack in the early days when you were there, how was this balanced, like the blend between performance and brand? It's a good question. So in early days, I'd say Slack was very much focused on viral growth and product growth. Uh, so it's really about end user experience. Then um, marketing primarily focused on product marketing and content marketing. Uh, we actually have a fantastic blog. Uh, several people are typing and, and like people people love it. It's, it's all about long form journalistic coverage, um, not necessarily like SEO optimized articles, but really like more brand building articles. And then when Slack went to um, more of the, uh, more the, the scaling stage, um, right around, I'd say like 70, 100 million ARR, we started doing more of the like actual growth marketing work. So like SEO and uh, paid media um, and, and scaling the, uh, the website testing, etc. And then uh, when... I'd say it's almost um, pretty pretty mature stage. Uh, we started running a brand. Actually, like at one point, we did we did run a earlier um, brand campaign um, pretty early on. That that was that was helpful. Um, but yeah, like brand uh, as a concentrated effort came in later. Um, though there is a difference between um, brand media campaign and building a brand through, you know, PR or organic or just telling the story through user experience. I think that for the, for the second of like building the brand story via organic channels, it's throughout. But built, like launching a big brand campaign came in later. Got it. Interesting. I'm, I'm curious what, yeah, what, what Paul's experience has been. Like, at what stage do you see, like, you know, do you see a difference between brand building versus a brand campaign? Um, and at what stage these activities come in? So I think it's, it's a, it may be a perfect segue even just to talking about, I mean, I give you what, I think everyone has a different definition of what brand versus performance is. And so I can give you my definitions on brand for performance and what I mean by those things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so for me, th th there's two ways that you can sell something as a marketer. 
performance marketing um, tends to be some variation of a rational direct response communication. It is explaining something and its value and getting someone to take immediate action. Um, that includes search ads, it includes most ads that are on YouTube, it includes most social ads, it includes display, it includes you know the way direct mail is typically executed, and then it includes performance variations that exist on other channels, including radio and TV. Um, and, uh, and those things tend to work purely through um, a short-term immediate response to that action. You know, their effects are very short-lived. Um, they're typically, you know, the effects of those advertisements, advertisements may be gone in minutes or days. When I talk about brand building, what I'm talking about is emotional priming um, to create memory structures and um, to increase the propensity of self-adoption over a very long period of time. And it tends to uh, lean into very simple messages, who the brand is, what it looks like, what it's called, what it's for, and then triggering very strong emotional response, typically through a media that's able to you know, carry emotion like streaming video or TV um, or sometimes audio. And you know, so the, those sorts of things tend to increase sales over the very long time. And the ideal is really to get those things in balance. Um, you know, the more you increase consideration, um, you know, the more likely people are to take action on all of your, you know, advertising media. That's the way I think about those two things. And then in terms of where they fit in the category, I think there's just different things you do at different stages. And so Miro, for example, used to be called real-time board. Uh, and real-time board was, was not something that was um, sitting in the best place in memory, it didn't have a particularly distinctive identity. And so the first optimization for memory for Miro was to change the name to, to Miro um, and to, to really strengthen um, the identity. And that was a great foundation for increasing um, word of mouth, increasing memory. Um, and, you know, it, it then now gives us a foundation to do other sorts of, of marketing. You know, at Indeed, at the time I joined, the, the business was, was unheard of. We actually had, you know, almost negative brand consideration. We had more people using the product than were aware of it, mostly coming through search channels. We were really, really good at, at SEO and, and organic search. And, um, and so, you know, we drove really significant effects by just, you know, really emotional brand building. Again, a lot actually leaning into TV, although it was integrated, um, uh, just to get more people to self-adopt on the B2C and B2B sides. That's a really good framework. So I have a question that I'd like to open up to the audience just to get them involved, which is, and I'm going to ask this both Paul to you and Holly. I'm curious, two things. One, what is the most top of mind strategic challenge and thereby opportunity that you're thinking through right now? It's like very top of mind. And then what's the most top of mind tactical challenge in the business right now that you're thinking through and, and feel like there's opportunity there? Um, Holly, for you, if you can maybe pattern match to some of the companies that you're advising right now, if there's something that stands out there and Paul, obviously with Miro, and then everyone who's listening in right now, if you can put what those two things are for you and your business in the chat, then that'll give us an opportunity to use those as points of discussion so we can have all the brains uh, on stage right now, talking through the problems that you're really trying to solve for at the moment. So Holly, I'm gonna open for you. <laughs> I think the, the top of mind uh, for me is measurement. Um, all, all of us know it's important to, to build brand. Uh, and we know the usual suspects of building brands, right? Like telling PR stories, um, getting speaking slots on at conferences, uh, running TV, streaming, streaming, uh, media campaigns. Um, there are measurements. For example, you can work with a brand measurement partner to, uh, to run surveys and, and cross tab to measure the effectiveness. Um, at the same time, it's not necessarily super accurate uh, or representative because it's a sample uh, versus the, the entire thing. Um, measuring certain channels can be expensive uh, as well. Um, so um, marketers need to be really 
intentional about channel level impact uh, of a holistic integrated campaign. Um, we can say we you know, spend uh, $5 million, have these five channels, uh, but which channels are actually effective or what are each channel's role in this holistic campaign? Uh, so measurement, it would be uh, the most most top of mind from both the strategy and tactical perspective um, and the impact on performance marketing, on conversion rates, on the bottom line, as well as the time to observe those benefits. Um, I'd say it's it's uh, one of the top top of mind uh, things for for all marketers, probably. Uh, what do you it. think? Yeah, I mean, for, for me, the, the topical thing, I mean, so I've been at Miro less than a year. I joined last um, September. We've seen a lot of growth during that time. I think we've gone to from, you know, 400 employees to about 1,000 in those 10 or 11 months. And um, for me, it's, it's just kind of um, hiring great leaders and putting together kind of a full marketing organization that does all of the pieces from the growth marketing to brand to community to, you know, the enterprise side of our business to, you know, all of the depth that we need around product marketing around the world. Um, so that for sure is the, is the work that I'm, I'm really deeply in is building up all these functions and capabilities for a you know, growing and changing organization. I love that. All right. So we've got, uh, we've got our first couple questions coming in here. So we're going to take them live. Uh, the first one is from Manami over at Mooksoft. And so she said, tactical, testing performance marketing channels that drive effective adoption and growth for a tech buying audience where their main buying pattern is buying from community brand referrals and they are big fans of ad blockers <laughs> would love any ideas have either of you either of you have experience with a technical audience in particular typically uh, like very developer focused audience um, don't like to, you know, they, they use ad blockers a lot and they don't want to be marketed to, um, especially display ads wouldn't work very well with that, with that audience. So we typically try to go after more of um, um, a channel where the developers already trust and love. Uh, so we know they congregate at, you know, like Stack Overflow or Hacker News or Reddit. Um, there are also like private marketplaces where uh, it's, you know, websites that they already use like Dribble, etc. cetera. Uh, so, um, so being present on those those platforms, um, as well as being in those platforms in a non-intrusive way, is where we we test a lot of this. Um, and then another another one I recently started testing is community driven referral. So um, depending on your resource level, you could create a community. Uh, let's say um, everyone who is a, uh, I don't know, data scientist. And you, you can have a data scientist community where um, you share uh, best practices. And among them, uh, it's where all data scientists to, to share best practices. Um, at the same time, it also takes uh, lots of effort in managing a community. Uh, and in it's it's harder to measure oh how what percentage of your uh, referral actually came from the community versus others so it, it needs to be a very intentional choice um and it probably initially have to be uh more of a um let's let's try this out for a while uh knowing that we may not see very direct response type of um impact in the short term. I don't know too much data. I would just say that the I don't I don't have a lot of expertise in these 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 channels, but certainly understand the channels, certainly understand the challenges and have watched, you know, um, some companies like Atlassian navigate this stuff brilliantly. Um, I mean I I I think that um, those are real obstacles and yet like still continually running experiments on performance channels, trying different creative approaches, seeing where you can lean into amplifying community or evangelists, you know, or other people that are trusted, you know, for sure can help. And, um, but yeah, uh, you know, to, to, the ad blockers are for sure going to take away, you know, some of your ability to reach people and hopefully there's ways to increase performance around that, to, um, you know, to get around that or to try channels that, you know, are harder to block. Yeah, honestly, yeah. I, th I think it's important to get the mix right. 
like you want to continuously be testing performance marketing initiatives in these channel in these niche channels like you know, all the places that they're hanging out that Holly mentioned but then there's also this long game that I think maps back to the, the close equivalent would be brand marketing, but it's just called DevRel, right? Where it's like, what's your blend of performance marketing initiatives and tests and budget against the more like mid and long-term initiative of developer relations? Um, you know, we see all of all of the most successful uh, product-led. You're thinking about like the GitHub's and the GitLab's of the world, Atlassian even for certain products where they're beloved amongst that community. And, and that isn't something that you can go for a conversion event up front with, but in the same, same way that I think we were talking about brand earlier, that is something that you can invest in over the long haul and find ways to build goodwill in the community so that when the conversation about the category that your product is in comes up, you're the first that's mentioned and you're, you're the brand that these developers want to attach themselves to. It makes almost makes them feel cool. So um, great questions. I'm going to jump over to Michael Brooks uh, from Weatherbug, who has two questions for us. The strategic challenge. I love this one, by the way, Michael. Uh, how do we prepare for a future less reliant on shifting ad tech, re-Apple and Google? We'll start with that one. Either of you guys want to jump in on that? I'm, I'm for sure glad to. I mean, the... It feels very familiar to me because of so much time and money that I've spent on channels that don't have those same measurement approaches. I think that there's there's a few ways that I, I think about this. I mean, one is just experiment design. Um, you know, doing different. You know, whether it's geo splits or um, whatever. You know, controls and holdouts that you can set is is really key. Um, I mean, still there's like I I find a surprising number of places where there's options for. Um, you know, server-to-server -server, um, measurement approaches. Obviously, the major ad providers have you know direct integration methods. You know, you know, there's even things like pod sites that I use for podcast tracking, where we can you know directly connect and see who in our funnel has been exposed to our podcast ads. There's TV equivalents of those, like iSpot, that um, allow you know TV measurement of this. And so, it, it isn't as easy as it was. You know, having um, you know. Uh, expertise on those sorts of like getting your like data clean and your data pipeline abilities strong and then doing those server to server integrations becomes really important to making this stuff work. But I, I feel like I'm not seeing, you know, too much in the way of limitations um, from these changes that are coming in terms of what our marketing teams are able to do on the performance side. Uh, and it's, it's a combination of those things that allows that. Yeah, I, I also observed a trend that a lot of uh, more traditional channels, uh, we're talking about like TV and um, audio and um, out of home uh, becoming more uh, digitally integrated. Um, so you can digitally buy streaming um, spots and uh, a connected TV, um, even, even like a, a podcast, a broadcast TV uh, and connect that with your um, digital measurement systems. So like they're, they're, they're vendors who integrate with like Google Analytics, for example, uh, and, and, and connects that, those audiences. So they're, they're, they're constantly more new technical solutions. They're trying to um, solve this issue. Uh, I agree with Paul that first party data is becoming more and more important in driving this and owning, owning your existing audience uh, and model against that is probably the way to go. But I know like, you know, for uh, Michael, the IDFA, like that impacts a lot more of the app ecosystem in addition to, to the desktop world. So I'm curious, we've been talking a fair amount a bit about these, what might be considered like alternative, at least in B2B, a little bit alternative or on the fringe channels, like leveraging ads in Hulu or like podcasts, these sorts of things that folks get around to at some point when they're doing channel expansion, but aren't necessarily a major part of their go-to-market per se. 
Paul, I'd, lo- I'd love to ask you the question at Miro, like, what are you seeing that excites you in that space? And, and maybe if you're comfortable sharing some specific stories of campaigns that you've run that have performed really well, and maybe some that you thought would perform well and didn't that you removed from your experiment. Just based on where I am in the evolution, it's probably better for me to give you some of the Indeed stuff because we live that end to end and Miro stuff still in development. So I can't talk about what's coming, but yeah. on, the, on the Indeed side, um, I mean, you know, I, I can say the following, right? That we were we were a top ten U.S. radio advertiser, um, and so I mean, we spent on radio at an enormous scale. But you know, I mean, we tested across pretty much every channel that that existed, and and it really is the mix. I mean, I would say that a couple of things. You know, the the first is what what are you trying to accomplish with that channel? Um, and the perform my experience with performance is that um, and th- there's. You, you exhaust the digital stuff relatively quickly as you get to scale. Like if you're, you know, a business that is likely to get towards a billion dollars or into the multi-billion dollar range of revenue, um, you know, you will have exhausted digital channels a long time ago, um, somewhere in the hundreds of millions of, of revenue. Um, you will be spending all that you can on Google, all that you can on Facebook. You know, some will have figured out YouTube. Uh, and, and, and so then you need to figure out what are your other sources of performance growth. And, you know, you have to go to the big channels that are TV, radio, podcast, uh, and, um, you know, streaming audio and some of these other things and, and able to get to real scale. Uh, and there's enormous opportunity in those channels. And they're a lot of fun actually to work with once you start getting into them. Audio is a lot easier than video, obviously, because of the creative that you use with that. Podcast is a great starting point for people trying to do other things because it's digital, fully measurable. Um, you know, you can get an agency that manages a lot for you, but the, all of that stuff I find really exciting. Um, and that's still all performance. And then it gets a little bit trickier when you want to get brand in the mix to raise you know consideration and drive long-term growth and to do that emotional priming because there's a much narrower set of channels that can be used for brand building um, to drive long-term growth and there are almost no digital channels that are effective for that I'm super curious like Paul what do you what metric do you use to measure your brand efforts I, I mean so for me I measure the to me brand and performance should be measured on the exact same thing which is revenue cost of acquisition um, and uh, you know the long-term value that you're generating from you know the advertising spend that you're doing but I think that there's a bunch of critical things in terms of how you measure that um, you know so when, when you're doing a performance marketing campaign, you'll generate short-term effects and no long-term effects for the most part. There's very little change in brand consideration that comes from most performance marketing campaigns. When you're doing emotional priming long-term campaigns, you'll generate short-term effects um, that are probably smaller than what you would generate on performance marketing, but then you'll generate a very, very long tail of conversions um, or, you know, incremental adoption or incremental impact in the other channels. And that stuff is really hard to measure. And so that is the entire trick in being able to measure this, but you've got to bring that back to revenue. And so there's a few ways that you do that. Um, I mean, for me, it's important to have just brand tracking so that you can see what's coming from performance and what's coming from changes in consideration. And so brand tracking tends to be survey driven where you're looking at, you know, unaided measures of changes in people's willingness to, to buy your product or use your, your service. I think then the, the critical thing to tease out long-term and short-term performance is econometric modeling. Um, you know, my last team, we had, you know, a, a PhD former professor who was part of our full-time team um, and whose entire job was just doing econometric modeling to understand and tease out performance between short-term and long-term. Um, but, but all of that for me just comes back to, to revenue over different timeframes. Mm, that's really, really good point. It's like you, you run surveys while you run the brand campaign. So, you know, the, the incremental lift of consideration, and then you observe the, the after effects, um, over time. And, and that's the trick. It's that. Um, there's two types of advertising, again, performance and brand. Both of them generate short-term effects. Most measurement is just of short-term effects. 
And so when you're running a what you think is a brand campaign, you don't know if you're, you know, most brand campaign work by tech companies winds up being performance marketing over brand channels because they're afraid to move away from rational messaging to emotional messaging. And there's someone in their business who are saying, you haven't shown enough of the product or told enough of the story or explained all the features or done all of that. And if you start doing any of that, you've already lost. And so like strong brand advertising is going to be, you know, deeply emotional. Um, and that's what drives that memory. And so, yes, um, what you want to do is, it's, you know, it takes six months typically to see brand effects. And so what you want to do is be tracking um, brand con create consideration continuously over that. And you want to see those things move together. Um, and then you need to be able to link that consideration change back to increases in the performance marketing, you know, conversions that come from over time and econometric marketing modeling can help with that. Um, um, and so as well as, um, you know, other things like branded search, SEO impact, all of which are also going to be related to that. I think this, this ties into something you were saying, Paul, reminds me of this, this thing that I see constantly. And I'd imagine, um, Holly, in your advising stints, you also see this where companies who are on not the Indeed level of scale, like they, they maybe just got their unicorn status and they're, grow, they're still there in hyper growth, but there's this tendency because of that early stage to everything goes through the product lens, all of the copywriting, all of the campaigning, all of the hypotheses and tests are through the lens of features and through the lens of, of the voice of the product, essentially, as opposed to what are the underlying human emotions that your buying committee is experiencing or, or going through? Like what, what is the thing that allows the person you're trying to get to adopt or sell to, to turn their phone off on the weekends and enjoy their kid's soccer game, right? And, and like most companies, it takes them a while to get to this point of maturity where they understand that marketing to that is much more powerful or can be much more powerful than marketing the product, marketing the features, and, and being much more literal about how they're going to market. Paul, does that does that feel like it's the parallel, uh, the earlier stage parallel to what you've described? Yeah, I, yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think, like for all of us, if you if like, I grew up in New York City in Manhattan, and I, if I look back to when I was a kid. So long ago, like, you know, I, I can still remember a zillion advertisements from those days. And um, I, you know, was bombarded every time you walked down the street with someone handing out flyers. I started doing that myself when I was six years old. And I can't remember any of the things that was ever on any of those flyers. Those were all performance marketing activation things. It just doesn't stick with you. Um, but but there are other types of advertising that get wound into culture, that get wound into memory, and they're designed to really connect and impact you. And there's a lot of that out there. And I, I think the interesting thing is for tech companies to figure out how they become memorable. And there are other paths to this for sure. Like Tesla is not famous because of doing brand advertising. Um, it is through PR and communications and product and obviously, um, you know, a, a founder who's great at, at generating attention. Um, but, but I think every business can figure out where to sit in this and how to, and how to get noticed and to get remembered. And I think the key thing to think about is that we, all, everyone has endless choices right now. It's like if you're a SaaS company, there's 15,000 other companies and no one cares. Um, about your business. And so really like the, how do you sneak into people's memories and become one of the brands? Because every category becomes a brand shortcut at some point in time, you know, and you'd look at just the way people dominate, you know, whether it's Salesforce to Slack, um, all one now, but the, uh, but, 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 but for sure, like you've, you've got to be able to drive growth but also be able to drive memory share, which becomes consideration share, which is equally important. Okay, so here's here's a out of a box question. If we want to lengthen the memory and get emotional response, let's say, what if we create an emotional, uh, let's say YouTube video uh, that and use performance 
tactic and run it as a performance channel, let's say like YouTube for action, right? Like very typical performance channel, but having an emotional messaging, would that work? And would you consider that as like brand or performance? It's, it is it is such a great question. So I, I so for sure this was I had this thought you know at, at indeed it's an obvious thing right TV was working for us YouTube has got to work and in fact like when you know TV is dying and people aren't watching TV where do you go next and it seems so obvious that YouTube is where you go next and so we did a fair number of experiments on this and what we found was that we could not run even with custom assets or the same assets that we could not get consideration lift off YouTube. The only thing we could do is that we could extend campaigns that were running on TV with YouTube and get some incremental lift and it perplexed me. And then I ran into Karen Nelson Fields, who's a professor. Um, she wrote like The Attention Economy. It's an incredibly important book for any growth marketer to read. Um, and Karen Nelson Fields out of Australia has studied this for years. Um, and what she looks at is um, the memory effects of different channels. And what it turns out is that there's a couple of things that turn that determine how much memory effect is generated by a channel. One is obvious and it's just screen pixel coverage. And then the other is the level of attention. But it's actually that screen pixel coverage that's really important. And it turns out that YouTube is typically watched on a mobile device and it's typically watched vertically. And it covers something like 30% of the screen and there's a lot of other things happening. Um, and it doesn't drive very strong memory effects. Um, the memory effects from uh, YouTube last eight days um, in terms of their effects on sales. And for TV, it's 109 days. And so it's a pretty significant difference. Um, Facebook is even worse than YouTube. And it's the same thing. It's just lower pixel coverage uh, for video. It's also watched more passively than Facebook. And so um, what, what that research, which you know I've seen in experiments shows as well, is that YouTube is a really difficult performance channel. I'll also just note that it's I've, I've met with a lot of people at Google, but it's probably not a coincidence that the memory effects of YouTube last eight days and that the brand lift studies are typically conducted after seven. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Eli, have you like seen your your clients like running into this like performance versus brand and how they think about a holistic structure? Yeah, I mean, especially lately, it feels like if it feels as though there are these waves that go through the valley that end up emphasizing certain elements or, or, or approaches to marketing, right? Like there was the big ABM wave where that was everyone was talking about. And there was a period where even mentioning brand marketing was almost like the soft thing that nobody wanted to talk about or that it felt like a weakness instead of a strength. And I think it's probably part one because we're talking about earlier stage, like series B through you know, 100 million in ARR and not the later stage where they understand brand. But then also just, I think the trends to go through the valley. So now we're seeing a lot more emphasis on this conversation and finding the right blend. Then there's also, like, even if we think about the drop boxes of the world, it's, it's interesting to see these brands, struggle is a strong word to use, but tussle with, what the right part of this to lean into is and, and how to make it still connect with who they are as a company, right? Like I think famously there was this campaign that Dropbox put out, maybe it was three years ago now that, that was just like not well received at all. It was it's very- like, I remember like a pink flying boat or something like that. Is yep, that the- Yeah, that's yeah. the campaign. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and, yeah. And you can go and, and read the YouTube comments and it's like, it's just getting flamed for, for, for not, for missing the mark in such a major way. And, you know, I say this as someone who's an advisor to the company on marketing, but so I think that's an example of, of a company trying like caught in between this identity and, and how much emphasis and how to put the emphasis on brand while not losing sight of performance marketing. That's a little bit of a, a, a rant, but... <laughs> I think there's two really interesting lessons, though, in the Dropbox story. One is that if you're a B2B product-led growth company, you, you're, you've got three things that have to come together, and it's incredibly difficult to do this, and it tends to be different people in the organization. And that is category definition, 
core product marketing, positioning and messaging, and then brand strategy. And that all needs to be part of, you know, one identity. And often these things get fragmented or done in different ways or at different times. And so it's really hard to pull that off. I think that the other thing is, you know, I mean, Dropbox has not been successful, I don't believe, with their, their brand investments. And they know because enough people have told them that, you know, and I don't have any internal view into this, but I, I've talked to so many PLG companies. And the fact of the matter is that PLG doesn't last, for, last forever. And at some point, your top of funnel slows down. And you need to balance that with more traditional methods of sales and more traditional methods of growing that top of the funnel. And I would assume that that's one of the reasons why Dropbox keeps experimenting with these sorts of brand things. I, I think the thing that I see in a lot of businesses is that they don't experiment at the right level. Brand building actually is a pretty significant investment and that investment gets a lot higher um, the more rigid a category has become. And I think Dropbox is an incredibly rigid category in terms of the lines. It's a lot harder now to move someone from Google Drive to Dropbox if you know your starting point is today than at the point that Dropbox started. And so um, um, you know, the, the the price of that and the experiment is probably a really significant thing. And people often try to like dip their toes in and it's very hard to make that work. Completely. Yeah, it's the the arm not talking to the leg, not talking to the ear problem. And then also, as some of these companies grow, we'll continue to run with the Dropbox uh, as as the specific example. But you know, file sync and share, which is their category traditionally, has become a commodity. So then the question is like almost an identity threat of like, okay, if we're trying to not just be file sync and share, but we are, but everybody knows this is file sync and share, these brand bets get even murkier because it's like, well, what you, you said category, defi- uh, category definition, I think, which totally resonates is like, if you're having a challenging time or not even challenging time, but just if you're in the midst of figuring out where you want to define yourself, of course, launching a brand level campaign is going to be, it's going to come off the way that that campaign did. I'll go ahead. Yeah. I have a thought. Just, I mean, it brings back the nearly days that indeed, like we competed against a brand behemoth, which was Monster. And people said, there's no way you're going to ever be Monster. Most people today don't even remember Monster. Um, but but the, the lesson I think in Monster is it's a company that had incredibly high awareness and low consideration. People knew it exists, but didn't necessarily want to use that. And when categories shift or your business needs to shift, I, I do think it's much harder to take one brand from one part of the the world to another space, which may be the Dropbox thing, than to build a new brand from scratch as a different company. And so those are very difficult situations to, to be in. How do you think about category definition, Paul? Like, you know, we can say Miro is a online whiteboard, or we can say uh, it's online collaboration, or we can say it's like digital transformation. Like, how do you think about category definition, especially in the context of everyone trying to to do a, to, to create a category. Yeah. So I, 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 my starting point for category creation, um, I think first of all, that category creation for a business to business PLG SaaS company is a little bit complex because there's two audiences. One audience is the users you're trying to attract. And then the other audience is a really narrow set of like analysts, um, enterprise buyers and maybe pundits. And so I think those things re- require a little bit of different consideration. On the, I, I tend to start with the user side first. Um, and so when I think about the user side, I tend to be thinking, you know, when I think in general about marketing, I think often about non-users and people who have no awareness of me and try to have as much marketing speak to people that are non-users because that's the way that you drive growth. And so the lens for category creation for me is, um, is simplicity and understanding. You know, it's one of the reasons why Miro, we talk a lot about being an online whiteboard. Miro is so powerful and deep a visual collaboration platform and an online whiteboard absolutely does it a disservice. But I need a starting point for someone who has no idea what this category is and hasn't experienced to be able to reference. And so for me, that's a really powerful starting point. Um, and so I, I start with simplicity and accessibility in someone's mind. It needs to be something that it can be explained almost instantaneously, even if it doesn't get the full value. On the enterprise side, it's trickier. And I think you just need to tell a richer, more nuanced story. And you may name that category and put language around that. That's, that's different. 
Mm, so that's more like to the investors, to the to the analysts, and sort of the yeah okay. CIOs um, who have to sign a check. Yeah, mm. for sure. Like, and, and it is reasonable. There's there's a different conversation you need to have around value than getting a user to get going and to solve their own things. We we exist as PLG companies in both these worlds. Yeah, I have a like related question about rebrand because <laughs> you know, like Miro went through th- this rebrand, and I and it you know. Slack changed its logo, which was like a huge effort. And uh, SurveyMonkey recently changed its name to Momentous. Uh, um, I'm curious about your view on like, when should you do a rebrand? Should you do a rebrand? How do you approach about like thinking through uh, this question? So naming is a different issue too, but I'll just, the I, so, so, um, so I, I actually think that one of the most important things around long-term memory is being recognizable. And that in a lot of cases, distinctiveness is actually more important than differentiation. And that's like a controversial statement in a lot of circles, but distinctiveness, you know, being very clearly recognizable um, and able to drive memory is is really, really important. And so when I think about a rebrand, it's how do I create distinctive assets that I can invest in and grow and um, and, and measure? Uh, and I can give you a couple of examples of that. You know, one of the obvious ones is just owning a color. Um, and there are a lot of opportunities for that. You know, Miro, I love our, our yellow and black, which um, of the core logo is just recognizable and different and stands out. And so that's helpful in a world where a lot of things are blending together. A friend of mine is CMO of the National Lottery of Ireland, and his entire focus has been on building a campaign that is actually focused on winners going and installing water slides in their house. And they're these giant, big plastic water slides, but all of their campaigns are built around that. And now they can run like a five second teaser ad that is just a water slide going across a bridge on a giant truck. And people immediately recognize that as being associated with the lottery. And so these assets can come from a lot of places and they can be fun. But I think the key thing is to try to have something that's uniquely associated with your brand and can be used to trigger that memory. So with, uh, with four minutes left, um, as we wind down, I have a question. Well, first housekeeping reminder for everybody here is here. We're going to be doing this again, same time next week with a different guest. So Paul, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us and nerding out on all these different topics. I think we covered some really fun ground today. Um, And then Paul, this one's for you. So I would love for you to nominate uh, unofficially three marketing leaders who you think would be really fun and interesting to have on the show at currently at unicorn companies. Yeah. Great. Do I, do I get some time to think about that? Yeah, you can think about it. You can think about it. And while you're thinking about it, I'll uh, put a challenge back to the audience as well. If there are any topics that are really top of mind and that you'd like us to specifically bring up next time, or maybe things that you wanted to ask that, didn't have a chance to this time. Put them in the chat so we know uh, we know what you're thinking. So a couple. I, I can, I've got some people that I'd like to nominate. Awesome. So I would like to nominate. Well, for sure, Juliet Slack. Um, I've known for 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 decades. Um, uh, David Asana, and then the third person. I, I don't even. I don't know the person, but I would love to nominate whoever runs marketing at Canva because. Um, they have really done a phenomenal job at, at balancing the different pieces that drive growth. I love I'm that. talking to Tiffany at Canva, so I'll nudge. <laughs> yeah, Amazing. Well, again, uh, this was really fun. Holly, always great to have co-host with you. And Paul, thank you again. And everybody who showed up. It was awesome. It's great. Yeah, it's so fun. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much, Paul. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for for being brave and being the first guest. Yeah, that was great. Well, I I love being part of this. So thank you for for including me. Always happy to participate and help out. All right, everybody. Have a great night. Have a great night, everyone. 